Many cities grapple with the same problems San Francisco does. Lack of affordable housing, homelessness, food insecurity, public safety. In 2017, Michael Tubbs became mayor of Stockton, California. He saw the same issues as many other mayors do, and he kept coming back to one factor they all had in common. It became very apparent that all the issues we were fighting, whether it was housing insecurity and homelessness, whether it was violence or educational attainment, at the root cause was economic insecurity and poverty being almost an heirloom passed down from generation to generation in certain neighborhoods in the city forever. He wanted things to change. He wanted to try something different. And I said, you know what, if we're going to do anything, our legacy will be being an anti-poverty administration that's pro-opportunity. Tubbs launched the nation's first guaranteed income program led by a mayor. Money for financially struggling people every month, no strings attached. It's not a new concept. In fact, as we'll hear, one of its most famous proponents is a well-known civil rights leader. But it is an idea that's been gaining ground in recent years as more cities try it out. And during the pandemic, a time of widespread economic insecurity, state and federal governments also ramped up cash assistance programs. I'm Laura Wenis. This week's fix, giving impoverished people recurring cash payments to help them lift themselves out of poverty. This is known as a guaranteed income, and it's different from universal basic income in that it's not for everyone, just those experiencing poverty. Critics question where the money for a full-scale implementation would come from. They also say recipients would have less incentive to work and, without rules, would spend free money on drugs or alcohol. But pilot programs so far indicate recipients spend money primarily on necessities, and that often the money actually enabled recipients to get more or better work. According to the group Mayors for a Guaranteed Income, cash is a good solution because it moves quickly, it's flexible, and it can help fill the gaps in existing social safety nets. They also say we've already seen that cash assistance on a state and national level is possible and effective. Closer to home, San Francisco has several pilot programs that take specific aim at racial income disparities. The city is working out what it would take to put together something more long-term and scalable. From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. Michael Tubbs once served as the youngest mayor ever of Stockton, California. He wasn't reelected, so now he's an advisor on economic mobility and opportunity for Governor Gavin Newsom. But back in Stockton, Tubbs piloted the nation's first guaranteed income program led by a mayor. It was funded not by public dollars, but by private donations. It was called the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, or SEED. To qualify for the program, Stockton residents had to be 18 or older and live in a neighborhood where the median income was at or below about $46,000 a year. 125 of these qualified residents were selected as participants. But Tubbs didn't just wake up one day and decide everyone in poverty should get money every month. Yeah, I've always been obsessed with poverty and ending it since I was a child in poverty. It always felt me as very unjust and immoral and didn't make sense given the amount of resources and wealth that, <laughs> that we create, particularly in this country. And in college, I remember reading about Dr. King's vision for a guaranteed income. And what was novel to me was that I spent my entire childhood reenacting Dr. King's speeches and plays and doing Dr. King essay contests every King's Day and had never had anyone grapple with this part of his legacy. 
And I remember as a college freshman saying, it'll be very cool one day to be part of the discussion about what happened to this idea. So when, as mayor, he kept coming back to generational poverty being at the root of so many of the problems Stockton was facing, he decided to focus on that. So my team came back and I told them, find me a policy we can do that would end poverty. And they came back with a guaranteed income. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the stuff Dr. King was talking about. He was someone who cared deeply about the human condition and in doing so saw that there shouldn't be lack, there shouldn't be neglect, there shouldn't be poverty. He, and I think he also talked about the reason why we have such pervasive poverty. We have guided missiles and misguided men, I think he said, and, and really spoke about sort of the twin evils of racism, militarism, and hyper-capitalism really creating the conditions. And the guaranteed income speaks directly against those things and says there's nothing wrong with markets, but markets have to work for everyone. There's nothing wrong with enterprise, but we have to create the conditions upon which folks are able to be rational actors and make choices. And we can't behave as if the free market is this amorphous thing that we don't control through policy. When we have literally created policies that have generated wealth for some people and left other people to be less well off. Those who are less well off in American cities are often significantly less well off than their higher income or wealthier neighbors. In San Francisco, census data shows about 10% of the population lives in poverty. The need is enormous. If the scope of guaranteed income programs here were just looking at poverty, flat out giving every poor person here $500 a month would cost $43 million a month, more than half a billion a year. Let's say we decided to set eligibility like Stockton did, based on how the median income of your neighborhood compares to the area's median income, and if everyone eligible got it, not just a random selection. Then the cost would be closer to $112 million a month. That's just for the aid itself, and to say nothing of administration. For context, San Francisco's budget runs about $14 billion a year, and some city departments do cost more than a billion each. But we're not at that scale. Most of these programs are still in the pilot stage. They're serving a small, random selection of the people who are eligible. And eligibility, by the way, is also what distinguishes all of these programs from the concept of universal basic income. They're not universal. They're targeted, looking to help those people who need cash benefits the most. People like Rashida Foster, who's getting $1,000 a month through the Big Leap program in Los Angeles. Big Leap is paying 3,200 people for one year. To be eligible, a person has to have an income below the federal poverty level, have at least one dependent child, or be pregnant, and have experienced financial hardship related to the pandemic. Foster is a hairstylist, and she lost her job when the pandemic hit. She has three kids and is raising two of them, ages 11 and 12, in a two-bedroom apartment. She was actually wondering when guaranteed income would happen in L.A., for one, I did hear about it in, on the news. Like I would Google inserts about guaranteed income programs and I wondered what it was. And finally, it came to Los Angeles. The eligibility requirements for this program are fairly basic. Although one applicant wrote in The Guardian that the process felt invasive. A data gathering survey, which some applicants didn't know was not going to affect their eligibility, asked deeply personal questions about health and abuse history. For her part, Rashida Foster said the process from application to getting her first payment actually felt like it went fast. The big leap money was an enormous relief. A lot of my income has gone towards bills and, you know, just to sustain myself from being homeless. But I'm like, if they say one paycheck from being homeless, 
I don't have a job in the salons that I've worked at. Most of them has closed down. So I'm getting by just, you know, by word of mouth or some of my old clients. But then I'm fearful because I don't want to catch COVID. So the guaranteed income she receives is kind of literally a breath of fresh air. She's in Southern California. It's hot. The air conditioner, you know, stays on the majority of the day and night. Yep. And I have two, one in the front and one in my room. So the electricity bill is going through the roof. So that, you know, took a load off because I was like, the electricity bill is going to be so high. I don't know how I'm going to be able to pay that. But it's helped with getting a lot of personal stuff that we needed as far as hygiene, you know, for the girls and for cleaning supplies for my house. So I paid the gas bill with it. They have uniforms that I get for them and the uniforms, they usually last them good three to six months, but the shoes, I always have to get them shoes. So it's helped me with being able to buy, you know, shoes for them and groceries also. But she worries what will happen when the program ends. I'm hoping to not be dependent on it, but being able to, like I said, is giving me some relief. Her goal is to start her own business or at least get back into a salon so she can support her family. I would be able to save money at least to buy a house or a condo. So that's a a goal that I would like to accomplish one day, buying a condo or a house. Moving into bigger, better space. Foster is an activist in her community, advocating for social justice, economic empowerment, and better air quality. She wants big businesses that move into communities and rake in big profits to share some of that profit through programs like Big Leap. Although it's important to note that Big Leap specifically is funded with public dollars. Foster also says the time limit of guaranteed income programs is a problem. I think it should be an ongoing thing. I don't think that it should stop. I don't think that it should be for, you know, one year or, you know, I don't think it should be for 10 years or something like that. But at least until it helps the people of the community get out of poverty. That's the main thing. That is one of the limitations guaranteed income programs have so far. Most are short and have very few recipients. San Francisco has three programs made for very specific marginalized groups. One, called the Abundant Birth Project, gives $1,000 a month to pregnant Black and Pacific Islander women for six months during pregnancy and six months after. Another paid artists $1,000 a month for a year and a half to make up for income lost to the pandemic. And a third program is in motion for transgender residents. Across the board, recipients testify the money helped them stay housed and pay for essentials. That's often rent and food and utilities, but could also be unexpected costs like vehicle repairs or medical bills. But they also say the programs, even if they're short, help create a foundation for future stability. One abundant birth recipient told the advisory group, quote, I've always ran high stress about money, but I am starting to feel like I'm creating a basis for something. I can save. I can start to make more productive choices with my money. In Stockton, when people were given $500 a month, no strings attached, they did much the same. Here's former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs again. People spent money the way you and I spent money. Uh, People spent money like people. Like There was nothing abnormal about how people spent money because there was nothing abnormal about the people who just had a little bit less money than me and you. People reported being less anxious and healthier. And the findings also suggest that, contrary to the expectations of some critics, people weren't just kicking back when the money came in. 
the payments actually helped people get more work or better jobs. In the first year of the SEED program, the pool of participants saw a 12% increase in full-time employment. And then we also saw that people didn't stop working. In fact, those who received a guaranteed income were two times more likely to go from part-time to full-time employment than those who didn't. Those who received a guaranteed income were two times less likely to be unemployed. Those who received a guaranteed income were less stressed, less anxious. And what's interesting is that treatment group and the control group, those who received the income, those who didn't, looked the exact same. There was nothing different about the two, but for when you receive $5 a month and one didn't. And to have such dramatic differences for something, we're not talking about $5 billion a month, we're talking about $500 a month. Yeah, not the hugest difference to somebody who is not in poverty, right? <laughs> but to somebody who is. Absolutely. And it, and it goes to show you that, again, it's a choice. We made a choice that some people should be poor. Were there follow-up interviews, just like conversations with the people in the treatment group about like, how did you end up getting full employment or more employment because you were getting income? Like, how did one enable the other? Yeah, we, um, so the analysis done by Dr. Castro Baker and Dr. Stacia West from University of Pennsylvania included a qualitative component to make sense of the quantitative work. And the year one findings are on that same website. But what we've heard in stories was that it was oftentimes not having enough money for childcare that made people leave the workforce or made people take part-time jobs. Or one example, this guy, Tomas, he was working hourly and he was thinking through sort of what he could do with the $500. And he decided he would take a day off work to interview for another job. And people are like, why would he do that? Like, why would he need $500 to do that? Well, a lot of people don't have paid time off. So if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you literally can't even take a day off because that's $200 you're guaranteed to lose versus it's not a guarantee you'll get the job. And if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you can't afford to take risks on yourself. Yep. The $500 gave him enough cushion to do so. And guess what? He got the job. The job had more money, more benefits, and he had to work less hours. So he had to spend more time with his kids. And- it all made so much sense. And mm-hmm. it's because he didn't have money, he wasn't able to make money, which yeah. is like so bizarre. Of course, any program like this, especially Stockton's being the first in the country, will garner backlash. We'll get into that after a break. To confront poverty directly, dozens of cities are experimenting with targeted programs giving economically struggling people recurring payments. But the first mayor to lead a program like this, Michael Tubbs, dealt with a lot of backlash. The idea that recipients would spend money on drugs or alcohol persists, despite findings after the first year of Stockton's program showing less than a percent of the money went to those kinds of purchases. In Stockton's case, a lot of the blowback was directed specifically at Tubbs, who was a young black man, the youngest mayor of a city the size of Stockton, about 300,000 people at the time. Critics accused Stockton of favoring African-Americans for the money, a claim that Tubbs debunks. I would get all these weird hate mail and, and racist messages. I'm like, oh, my friends at Fox must have put me on. And, but I think it was also sort of who I was. Like, you had this 26-year-old black guy right. who was a mayor who's doing, who's giving people money. It became very racialized. So despite the fact that Stockton's only 10% Black, a lot of the critique was Michael Tubbs is only helping his people. I was like, like my constituents? No, you know what we mean. Like, like it became just like this radical scheme to just only help Black people, which was 
helping black people, I don't think is bad. So I thought that was a weird critique anyway. Like, yeah, like we should help black people too. Like that's that sounds good to me. Just for the record, what was the racial makeup of the people in the seed program? It was mostly white people. It was like 38% white. It was like, I was like, this is like white folks getting this money. It was like 35% white, 35% Latino. No, 35% white, 30% Latino, and 20% African American. So African Americans were slightly overrepresented in the sample size, but because African Americans are also very overrepresented in economic insecurity. So yep. like, duh. Yeah. Um, I think that's what a lot of it was too. It was like kind of who the messenger was and like what that represented. Like you have the youngest mayor ever in the country, the first black mayor doing guaranteed income. That's just a lot for people. So I think if maybe a more like a 55-year-old middle-aged moderate white man had come out with this, it wouldn't have been read, met with the same vitriol. But again, I'm so thankful for it. And then we also had to contend with this idea that people are poor because they can't spend money because they don't know how to use money. And it was like, well, I'm sure there's people who are poor who don't know how to spend money, but there's also people who are rich that don't know how to spend money. So much so that they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay people to tell them how to spend their money. Arguments like that, or my favorite was this argument we would have about the dignity of work. And I would tell people, like, I think the people who work have dignity. I think people who don't work have dignity. I think dignity is inherent to personhood. But a lot of work in this country doesn't give people the dignity of like union protections or stable hours or a living wage or safe conditions or the ability to make decisions. Like, like what? Like when you talk to people who are at the lower end of the economic system, they don't get their dignity from work. In fact, at work, they're treated very undignified and treated like machines or treated as less than people. Like their dignity comes from their family and their community and they work because they have to, but they don't get like, oh, I'm so dignified because I'm being yelled at by people who don't want to wear their mask in the restaurant I serve at. Like, like what are you talking about? That's just not real. So I have to contend with tropes like that too. The thing is that there are deep racial disparities in play here in terms of who experiences poverty. In San Francisco, African-American households experience poverty at more than four times the rate white ones do. For Hispanic or Latino households, the rate is nearly twice that of white households. This city also has the highest income inequality in California. The city's top earners make more than 12 times as much as people who earn the least. Partly in response to this, local guaranteed income programs are very focused on equity. Which specific marginalized group is targeted varies a lot, though. According to the city's Guaranteed Income Advisory Group, San Francisco has paid out more than $10 million to 15,000 people through its various guaranteed income initiatives. That includes the programs like the ones for expecting moms and for artists. And there's the Dream Keeper Initiative, in which Supervisor Shimon Walton and Mayor London Breed reallocated $120 million over two years from law enforcement to various investments in San Francisco's Black communities. Some of that money is being dispersed in guaranteed income programs. But the advisory group is also referring to things that aren't really branded guaranteed income, like the Right to Recover initiative. This was a wage replacement program for workers who couldn't get sick leave for COVID. In fact, there are now so many guaranteed income and cash assistance programs in San Francisco that this same advisory group called the sector chaotic and siloed. It even warned of the risk that work could be duplicated between all the different pilots. They recommended creating a position in city government that oversees and manages these programs. And now here we are, and there's uh, guaranteed income programs all over the place, and people are trying this out. What are you seeing? I'm seeing sort of a realization that, and it's funny because everyone's doing a guaranteed income for a particular population. And mm. my, my line has always been, yep, 
people with dogs, people without dogs, people coming out of like, no matter who you are, a little bit of cash will help solve a lot of problems. So yeah. like, no matter what group you're working with, it may have bigger impacts on some groups than others, but it's definitely necessary and needed. Um, so seeing that and seeing a lot of like local innovation and seeing a lot of people sort of think about it as it relates to sort of their work or the things they're most passionate about. Like a lot of people in the arts community talking about Gary to come as a way of, like in San Francisco to keep artists, et cetera. Um, so, so I've been really, really excited about that work. Public policy seems to have done a bit of a 180 on this topic. Back in 2002, there was a push from then-supervisor Gavin Newsom to no longer give the unhoused cash assistance and instead pull resources to give people shelter and counseling services. The philosophy was called care, not cash. The premise was that just giving people money doesn't help them long term. Fast forward to 2021, when a privately funded program in San Francisco called Miracle Money gave homeless people $500 a month for half a year. Today, San Francisco's advisory group on guaranteed income programs points to a different problem, something called the benefits cliff. Because of strict eligibility requirements for public benefits, income programs sometimes push recipients out of other benefits, like the program for pregnant women, where recipients face the loss of food assistance. Tubbs sees cash assistance and other services like counseling as part of one big network of support. Part of it is that cash is the expression of care. I care for you. I see you're economically insecure. Here's some cash to help. And the thing is, cash is not the panacea for everything. That mental health is still an issue. That substance use disorder are still issues. But everyone who has mental health issues isn't poor. And everyone who has substance abuse issues isn't poor. So it's ridiculous for me to put a posit that that's the driving force behind a, a, an issue that's economic in nature. So I think the cash really speaks to trust and agency and dignity and freedom. And this idea that, look, you are the best expert of your life. Because the thing is, Cash doesn't replace all the other help and all the other interventions. It's not saying get rid of everything and give people cash. It's saying instead of having all these things that aren't cash, let's also have cash part of the equation. And then people may be able to go to their doctor's appointments. People may be able to go to therapy. People may be able to go to substance use classes. But like it's hard to do all those things that don't pay but take time when you don't have cash. Another thing Tubbs talks a lot about is the violence of poverty. He explains it like this. So Dr. Paul Farmer has an amazing um, book called Mountains Beyond Mountains. And in it, he talks about structural violence, which is the avoidable impairment of basic human needs. In the same way that that's poverty, it, it's, it's inherently violent to be hungry and stressed and anxious and housing insecure. It's violence. It's violence to the spirit. It's violence to the body. It's literally violence to the brain development of babies. And, and we also see, because of that violence, that poverty is also highly correlated with violence. That when we talk about gun, some forms of gun violence, when we talk about sort of inner gun violence happening in neighborhoods, those aren't rich people shooting each other. Those aren't people with middle-class jobs shooting each other. Those are people who are housing insecure, people who are poor, people who are hungry, people who come from poverty, people who come from high-poverty neighborhoods that are, that are shooting in that sense. It's incredibly violent. And I think that's why... I'm so dedicated and focused on this issue because I think in this issue is the answer to so many of the problems we grapple with. And the answer to what I would argue is the country, the world we, we should live in, we ought to live in, and we, and we can live in. Can you unpack that mechanism a little bit for me? Um, you say there's a correlation between 
poverty and violence. Why is that? Like, how does one lead to the other? Do we know? Yeah, I, there's a bunch of researchers who could speak to this better than I can. But I mean, in correlation, does not necessarily mean causation, as we know. But we also know that sort of there's something about kind of poverty. We know this for a fact that impacts brain development, that impacts cortisol levels, that impacts your flight or fight response. So your response to a trigger may be different than someone else's response because of the way your brain has developed because of poverty. We also know that sort of with poverty comes a message that your life isn't worth anything, that the life of your neighbor isn't worth anything, mm. that it doesn't matter. It, it's really this nihilistic spirit around if I die, I die. If I live, I live. It doesn't matter. And in the same way, your life doesn't matter. If you live, you live. If you die, you die. Like this is just what we do, mm. right? We're hungry. We don't have housing. We're poor. It's violent. It's community. Everything's dirty. Like what? Like okay. Like it doesn't matter. We. My life has no value. Your life has no value. So I think that there's some of the reasons why. Um, and then we also know the a lot of these gun disputes and, and neighborhood gun violence happens be, for very small amounts of money, for fights over small territories and corners, hmm. or fights over human trafficking or, or, or drug trafficking, but not for millions of dollars, for money in the thousands, from home invasions and robberies. And, and we know that those all are at its core economic issues or a form of expression of economic anxiety. So there is now, I think, a number of different pilot programs. You mentioned that there's several happening around the country. I imagine you're watching those with great interest. What are you seeing? What are you observing? Well, through Mayors of Guaranteed Income, we're actually providing technical assistance and really on the ground, hands-on support um, from L.A. City to L.A. County to Cook County to Madison, Wisconsin, New Orleans, Louisiana, Gainesville, Florida, like anything, any pilot that's led by like a political figure, like my team at Measure Guaranteed Income, we're on the ground with them helping figuring it out. And it's been so inspiring to me because I remember when I first announced we were doing a guaranteed income program, everyone looked at me like I was crazy. Democrats and Republicans are like, there's no way. Like the dignity of work and people need to work. And now the pendulum has swung so much that at least on the Democratic side, there's consensus that whether it's a child tax credit. There's some level of economic security we have to give to people, particularly in this time of pandemics, and not give to people because they haven't earned it, but give to people because they have earned it, because they're creating so much wealth, because so much wealth is being generated and is happening in this country. So I'm incredibly proud, and I think it's a good reminder to me that oftentimes no one wants to go first because it's rife with risk, and you take all the hits, and you take all the bullets, but it's worth it. It's literally worth it. Because it's funny now, now people are doing, I was doing guaranteed income with other people's money, with philanthropic dollars. And people are trying to recall me from, I just, people like really angry. And I was like, I still don't understand the anger. And now we have mayors using government dollars, $40 million, $30 million, and being lauded for it, being told they're great leaders for it. And for me, it's so rewarding that sort of like going first and just 125 people in a small town of Stockton, California, has created a national movement of folks and elected leaders in office saying, I want my folks to have guaranteed income. No one in my community should live in poverty. And that's powerful because that conversation was not happening anywhere five years ago, at least from electeds. We're at a radically different point now. Less than a decade ago, the youngest mayor of Stockton was taking heat for starting the first radical cash assistance program of its kind. Now, San Francisco alone has a plethora of them. Despite the challenges, the local advisory group considers this city a leader in the field. 
San Francisco, along with dozens of others, is looking to move on from pilots into policy. I'm Laura Wenis. This is Fixing Our City. Next week on Fixing Our City, Houston's been in the news for housing about 25,000 homeless people in a decade. We'll talk about their strategy. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext.